Hello, I'm artist Gillian Knight and today's Art Fiction's host is art critic and author Elizabeth Fullerton, who is joined by artist Holly Hendry. Their focus is on the novel Remainder and their discussion had me thinking about all our best intention efforts to control the micro of our lives when we're simply just the detritus of evolution. So, that's cheery. Elizabeth and Holly actually managed to find a little humour in the mechanics of learning to move the body again following a horrific accident and the madness and sociopathic tendencies which possibly result from being overtly controlled by others. So I'll hand this episode over to them. But first, just a quick note to say that Holly's current and upcoming exhibition dates at the time of publishing are listed in the podcast notes. Hello and welcome to Art Fictions. I'm Elizabeth Fullerton and this week my guest is the amazing sculptor Holly Hendry. Hi Holly, it's so great to have you here. Great to speak with you. And oh my god, you've chosen the most insane book. (laughs) Um, Holly and I are going to be discussing Tom McCarthy's brilliant, complex, mind-boggling novel Remainder, which was published in 2005. So how to even start describing it? I'm going to give it a shot here. It's narrated in the first person by a man who has had a mysterious accident involving something falling from the sky, which left him in a coma for months. He has to relearn all his functions, like eating and walking again, but he never regains the ability to move naturally, to feel real. Instead, he feels as if his actions are artificial, second-hand. He gets a mammoth settlement of eight and a half million pounds, which suddenly opens up unexpected possibilities for him. At a friend's party, he has an epiphany when a crack in the bathroom wall triggers an unfolding of his memories around a specific building. He resolves to recreate the scene and commissions a logistics man called Naz, a sort of fixer for rich people, to buy that building or one similar, and he auditions actors to perform specific repeated actions throughout the building for hours on end, according to his fragmented memories. This way, he starts to access an intensity of feeling, but it's not enough. So he develops increasingly violent reenactment plans. He has Naz organise the fixing of a tyre in a garage, then several turf war shootings, necessitating vast sets and casts. Eventually, he comes up with the plan to reenact a bank robbery, but decides to actually stage a real robbery, keeping the reenactors in the dark. Naz plans it down to the tiniest detail, down to the mass killing of all the reenactors and producers in a plane disaster afterward, so their plan won't get found out. But inevitably, it all goes wrong. That's just giving the bare facts, but it doesn't begin to do justice to such a rich, deeply layered book that operates on multiple levels. McCarthy's descriptions are so vivid and detailed and nerdy and delicious. To me, it feels like a perfect fit with Holly's practice, as McCarthy dissects situations, objects, people in minute, almost forensic detail. And Holly is interested in internal systems, whether that's buildings or people, turning them inside out, excavating things to see what's going on beneath the surface and the connections between bodies, machines, geologies and epochs. Would you agree with that assessment, Holly? And what was at the heart of the appeal of Remainder to you? That's an amazing assessment. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And I think that description is really accurate and does justice to the kind of juiciness and coldness of it in both parts. And I was 
recommended I read Remainder by Helen Turner, who runs eWork Lückenwalde, just outside Berlin, with her partner. And I've actually told you I wanted to talk about this book as I was still reading it, so it felt a bit of a risk as well, like not quite knowing the end when I mentioned it to you. But for me, there was that immediate connection and excitement. And for me, I think this kind of way that it sets the scene with diagrams, marks, spills, and as the title suggests, matter, surplus matter, leftovers, and kind of what that means or what that is. It's difficult to know where to start now, and I feel it's very fresh still because it's a book that I have just read. But I think one of the main things that excites me about it is this idea of the leftover. And something that you feel the main character in the book is always trying to kind of work out as well. I think I relate to that a lot in my practice and the way I just live as well. You know, you constantly go about life feeling all these kind of layers that are shedding off you, the wrappers you leave behind, the people you meet, the things you say, you know, those things are kind of in my head and around me as well, literally. And I think there's a lot that can be talked about in regards to making and sculpture or art making in relation to what this book talks about too. So that was my starting point for why I chose it, really. It's really interesting. (laughs) So for you... What is the remainder? Because he actually only, if I remember, he only talks about a remainder right near the end in this sort of climactic scene. And he's a remainder yeah. after an accident. But yeah. there are so many remnants and remainders all the way through, aren't there? But what I think I like about it is that the remainder is the key. The remainder is the focus. Even though he talks so much about surplus matter and the excess and he gets very annoyed or uncomfortable with excess or dirt a lot of the time, but actually... I think the remainder is the focus. The remainder is like almost the ultimate. Very early on, he mentioned spills. There's a spill of coffee on his sleeve. Yes. And he's annoyed with it then. And then towards the end, there's talk of vaporising. And I think it's the same. It's a kind of remnant of something or it's an after effect. But it goes from being a detail, a kind of irksome detail to something massive. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And there are lots of spills, as you say, in the... Book. There's a, a stain that he wants to recreate exactly in the yard of the building that he buys. Mm. And then there's another spillage that he wants to recreate in the garage warehouse that they rebuild, I mm. think. There yeah. are several stains that he isn't happy with until he's completely reproduced mm. down to the tiniest detail. Yeah, and it seems it seems so like at odds with a stain it's a stain is an accident it's a it's a thing that's not purposeful to then recreate it in perfect precision and to make it like the perfect stain yes but it made me think about there's a part in the book where he talks about prints and patterns yes as well I guess that kind of relates you know these unintentional marks and he's talking about shoe prints and tire prints and actually I think pouring plaster into them like casting at one point as well and I think he said turning space hollowed out by action into solid matter and for me that's really interesting as well like maybe a stain becomes like the proof of an action or a proof of yes. movement or something I'm still kind of digesting it all I, I think know. it's a book I might need to read a few times yeah, or something I, I agree don't know. I weird. agree it's sending my mind whirring yeah. all over the place you know you really feel disoriented and mm. discombobulated but in a really good way it's exciting yeah I think that stain idea, that paradox, also relates for me to this paradox of performing repeated actions Mm. again and again and again to the point of absolute tedium in order to feel more real. I was thinking about that as well, like even just talking about stains, and I was thinking about that act of repetition through a lot of themes within the book that becomes this kind of act of, I think it's called semantic satiation, you know, it's like the psychological term for when you just say a word over and over again, like 
banana, banana, banana. But oh, really? Till it becomes completely absurd and loses the initial meaning. The word takes a different shape and form. Yeah. And I feel like he does that kind of with themes or topics as well. It becomes repeated so many times. You feel like you get it and then he kind of trips you up again at a different point yeah. and it becomes something else. <laughs> but I think, yeah, adds a wobbly structure to the book yeah. of some sorts. But then he's also so obsessive and compulsive that actually mm. you talk about tripping you up. He, in the reenactments, mm. catered to the need for actors tripping up. And so there's a deliberate kink in the carpet yeah. that yeah. they built on. And then eventually that's what they get really tripped up on, metaphorically speaking, because the reenactor in the bank expects to trip up, but there isn't a kink. And yeah. so the whole plan goes to pieces. Yeah, and I think yeah. that bit was really interesting because he said he was tripped up by matter. But actually... It's the idea of matter that's eventually been shipped up. There's no matter there. What did you make of the narrator? Yeah, I thought it's interesting to read a work of fiction where you don't know his name. You're not given any kind of clues to that other than his voice. And for me, he seems very cold. He's removed. He's obsessive. There's certain parts of the book where he's meant to care about a person, but he actually just cares about the detail around it, to the point where even when people are dying, he doesn't care about the death, he cares about the logistics around it. Even finds them beautiful. You know, yeah, exactly. Noticing yeah, patterns yeah. and yeah. the seeping of the blood onto the carpet and what that yeah. looks like. I mean, I think he's maybe psychotic or a yeah, sociopath. For sure. Or, although I don't know how literally we're even supposed to take yeah. that stuff. That's also another thing. I know, I think it's, it's interesting how he, like, rationalises spontaneity as well. Yes. He's got no ability to do that. But then those moments of spontaneity are the points where he actually feels the most real. But then he can't leave it at that. He always has to have control over it. It's like he wants to capitalise on that feeling. Yeah. And also, I think it's really interesting how he changes in the course of the book. Because at the start, he seems the victim mm-hmm. and quite passive and Mm. so we sort of feel sorry for him he's a bit of an oddball he's eccentric but he's not dangerous he seems innocuous and his life is being directed by everyone around him in the course of the book he grows more assertive and authoritarian Mm. and by the end he's megalomaniacal yeah he's kind of insane yeah you know totally or, or in terms of whatever we understand conventionally by sanity he is just in a world of systems and patterns, and that's how he lives his life. So it's very alienating, I think, mm. for the reader. Mm. It feels kind of sterile somehow, this world he's inhabiting, but completely fascinating. I don't know why. I think it's the power of the writing and the description that keeps us completely hooked. Yeah, I think it's very interesting that he has this coldness to other people. He has no regard for anybody's feelings, but he's had this accident that's affected his brain his way of kind of his cognition and stuff so you kind of make an excuse for it but I thought it was interesting the only female character we really hear as a voice in the whole book is one that brings in something about care she suggests that he donates money to a charity yeah I've only read one other book by Tom McCarthy and that was C there's a similarly alienated or estranged narrator who has a name he's Serge Carfax I think Mm. who's a comms expert and a radio operator in recce flights in the First World War, but then gets completely hooked on heroin and, again, has no regard for other people 
and also, like our narrator, mm. by the end has discovered that he gets a high from killing. And again, very male, and there isn't a very strong female presence. It's a very weird environment that we're drawn into in these mm. books, but it is nonetheless incredibly compelling. I feel the same, and I think there's nothing to solve, but I was trying to solve it, but I was trying to put together clues and things and I think that is also to do with this idea of authenticity or repetition there's a lot of loops mentioned in the book as well and patterns and diagrams and stuff and maybe he kind of like subconsciously sets the scene for that but I found myself trying to like maybe fix the character or understand him but for me as well I think there's a lot of references to mechanics or conveyors or electrical systems and I thought that was really interesting in this kind of robotic demeanor that he sometimes presents he feels almost like an automaton or something and it's quite a kind of sci-fi idea of that you know yes this robotic character that's trying to feel real that's trying to discover how to be the most i think what was it he says i wasn't unusual i was just more usual than most yeah (laughs) yeah (laughs) and like he realizes he's always been inauthentic because he says even children like learn from others so you're copying and it's this idea that something so robotic is trying to learn how to be real but from repetition or mechanical actions well also because his role model is robert de niro in a film and you're like but he's acting so how is that your model for being as real as you could possibly be i guess it makes you think of like advertising or something as well you know where you're presented with these ideas that you know aren't real like the people that you see aren't real people almost all of the time they're actors acting out what the ideal like situation is but those images or movements are meant to make you buy into that yes or even virtual reality games or yeah stuff like that especially this year we've found ourselves kind of developing those online conversations relationships and for some people those spaces are more real than the kind of social controls of the lived world as we know it you know the the kind of day-to-day existence so I think it it is interesting in those terms as well of like where can you find the most authentic version of yourself yeah 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 were there any passages that you wanted to pick out (laughs) I think one of my favorites and also one that kind of got me thinking a lot was a passage where he's talking about the process of relearning how to move again after the accident So he says, to cut and lay the new circuits, what they do is make you visualise things, simple things like lifting a carrot to your mouth. For the first week or so, they don't give you a carrot or even make you try to move your hand at all. They just ask you to visualise taking a carrot in your right hand, wrapping your fingers round it and then levering your whole forearm upwards from the elbow until the carrot reaches your mouth. They make you understand how it all works, which tendon does what, how each joint rotates, how angles, upward force and gravity contend with the counterbalance one another. Understanding this and picturing yourself lifting the carrot to your mouth again and again and again cuts circuits through your brain that will eventually allow you to perform the act itself. That's the idea. But the act itself, when you actually come to try it, turns out to be more complicated than you thought. There are 27 separate manoeuvres involved. You learn them one by one, in the right order, understood how they all work, run through them in your mind again and again and again for a whole week. But then you take a carrot, they bring you a fucking carrot, gnarled, dirty and irregular, in ways your imaginary carrot never was, and they stick it in your hands, and you know, you just know as soon as you see the barter thing that it's not going to work. That was enough to start short-circuiting the operation. It had texture, it had mass. The whole week I'd been gearing up to lift it. I thought of my hand, my fingers, 
My rerouted brain is my active agents and the carrot is a no-thing, a hollow carved space for me to grasp and move. This carrot, though, was more active than me, the way it bumped and wrinkled, how it crawled with grit. I love the kind of anatomical and mechanical and specific kind of almost instructions. You kind of feel yourself move in the same way. It's like puppetry or something. Also, he uses the kind of written technique of repetition there to kind of bring you into how he's been trying it and that frustration. But that act of the carrot is kind of quite a cartoony idea for me, you know, that idea of what you think of as passive stuff being active and having life and movement to it and being more alive than he is, more able to move, more able to feel, but also being more carroty. I think about that a lot in cartoons where it's like simple lines or gestures that become a kind of exaggeration of a form that then becomes more like that form than the thing itself. I've talked about it loads watching films like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where the kind of cartoonification of the cartoons highlight the human fragility or something as well. And there's something happening with that and the carrot. And he's almost jealous of the carrot. Yeah. Because the carrot can crawl through his fingers and it feels it has maybe more energy than him somehow. Mm. I think there's also humour in this in a really subtle way. Because the absolute lack of emotion, it's so extreme that it becomes almost cartoonish, yeah, like you said. Yeah, yeah, there's a total removal from the fact that it's even human. It's like cartoon violence where, you know, something can bounce back again. Yeah, exactly. So I've got a passage I was going to read out to just convey a sense of what we're talking about. So the first part is a reenactment of a shooting of a young man in the street It looks like it's a turf war and the man had been pursued by two men in a car and then they got out and shot him as he's trying to get away on his bike and he falls off the bike. The truth is that, for me, this man had become a symbol of perfection. It may have been clumsy to fall from his bike, but in dying beside the bollards on the tarmac, he'd done what I wanted to do, merged with the space around him sunk and flowed into it until there was no distance between it and him, and merged too with his actions, merged to the extent of having no more consciousness of them. He'd stopped being separate, removed, imperfect, cut out the detour. Then both mind and actions had resolved themselves into pure stasis. The spot that this had happened on was the ground zero of perfection, all perfection. It was sacred ground, blessed ground, and anyone who occupied it in the way he occupied it would become blessed too. And so I had to reenact his death, for myself certainly, but for the world in general as well. No one who understands this could accuse me of not being generous. That's a sort of insight, I think, into the way the narrator's mind works. Mm. It's just like Tom McCarthy's slicing it open and allowing yeah. us to see inside. You know, totally. A bit like, I think, what you're doing in your <laughs> yeah, yeah. sculpture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think, as well with that passage, that idea of bodily disillusion, you know, the kind of edges of something, the edges of understanding compared to the edges of a person's living, being, organism. While you were reading it, I was also thinking about bodily limits and pushing yourself to the extreme like people sprinting and that moment they're kind of in a zone which is no longer a body it's a movement it's something else I don't know I keep thinking about these examples of water to gas or air particles or something in that that makes me also think of like bodies pushing them to the extreme and then this kind of explosion and also changing state yeah yeah, Yeah. that's what I mean I think (laughs) yeah 
so I am going to just read another passage relating to this idea of the changing state mm. and how he sees incredible beauty there. So this is in the bank robbery. Somehow the gun goes off and the fourth robber gets shot and there's this slow motion tumbling effect of robbers two and five through the air and then onto the floor. So this is how McCarthy describes that. Two and five lay static on the floor, half joined and half unjoined, like acrobats frozen in mid-manoeuvre. Four lay fetal, curled up still. I stood still on the floor behind him. The only thing that moved was a deep red flow coming from Four's chest. It emerged from his chest and advanced onto the carpet. Beautiful, I whispered. Yeah, it feels significant that he, one, doesn't give them a name, and two, doesn't mention blood. Or that it's material again. It's yes. it's like movement and material and motion. And it's just red. Yeah, it's not from anybody in their last moments of life because he's seeing it as this thing where it's merging with their surrounding. It's like seeing a connection happening or something. Yeah. But again, I'm trying to kind of understand him or make excuses when you know, there's this strange coldness to the way your death is described. Totally. And I think you know you could see a lineage with transgressive literature generally, yeah. you know, with Bataille or J.G. Ballard. Mm. I thought of Camus with The Stranger, thinking yeah. about how he talks about his mother so coldly. Yeah. And almost, as we were saying, funny in a terrible way. Yeah, yeah. You know, because it's so inhuman. Yeah. Well, I think it brings in these notions of kind of slapstick almost. Like, just before the passage you read, there's this, like, tumbling of bodies as well, where you imagine it becoming like one of those kind of tumbleweed balls. It's like these very kind of like slapstick notions, <laughs> Buster Keaton type movements of things falling or bones breaking or slippages and yes. stuff, which is then tried to be controlled by this serious and determined character. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got any other ones you wanted to... There's a bit here just when he's been told how much money he's going to be given in the settlement and he's been told it's eight and a half million. And he says, I pictured it in my mind, its shape. The eight was perfect, neat, a curved figure infinitely turning back into itself. But then the half. Why'd they added the half? It seemed to me so messy, this half. A leftover fragment, a shard of detritus. When my kneecap had set after being shattered in the accident, one tiny splinter had stayed loose. The doctors hadn't managed to fish it out, so it just floated around beside the ball. I remember picturing the sun's leftover fraction, the half. As I walked down the street that day, picturing it as a splinter in my knee and frowning, thinking eight alone would have been better. I just found that bit really funny as well because he doesn't want half a million extra because it's too messy. And it feels significant that then the eight is obviously the symbol of infinity as well. It's got a smoothness and a curve to it. And so for me, that passage feels really symbolic as well. And it made me think when I try and talk about my work and my sculptures, recently I've been using this picture, which is a picture of the cement spill that happened on the Victoria line, where there was builders and they forgot to turn off the cement pump and they flooded the control room of the Victoria line. And it's an incredible image because it's like an extreme version of matter meeting technology. And what that meant is that the Victoria line was down for a day and it's like this loop that runs the city, moves people around. And so for me, it's like the same as the splinter or the shard, you know, a little a little moment that can suddenly have this kind of domino effect on a system or something. Yeah. And also it presages the end mm. because they finish 
just making an infinite loop of the figure of eight in yeah. the airplane. What did you make of the ending? The way McCarthy sets up the book is to kind of lead you down these labyrinths where you can't guess what's happening next. You can't second guess because the character himself is so irrational and erratic, even in his controlled manner, that I was never expecting an ending. Mm-hmm. And I think I like the symbolism of it being an ending that kind of is never ending, even though the ending means that they also kind of eventually will explode in the sky and become this kind of dream that he's always wanted. There's a moment in the book earlier on where he talks about there's this blue liquid in a car wash that the mechanics pour into the car and it's not going in the right bit, so the blue liquid's just disappearing. And he's, like, ecstatic about this. (laughs) And then he turns on the engine and it suddenly... It becomes, like, abject material again. It's, like, the reality of it. And so it feels like the author and the character are kind of living out the dream of disappearing into oblivion. Vaporising. Yeah, instead of being tied to the ground as actual dumb stuff that we all are like you know instead of that it's got this kind of spiritual connotation of it disappearing into nothingness and actually I think it's really useful or maybe just interesting to point out this little factoid which is that Tom McCarthy has been general secretary of a semi-fictitious organization that he co-founded called the International Necronautical Society which declares on its website that The origins of art lie in transgression, death and sacrifice. And they also say elsewhere in their manifesto, death is a type of space that we intend to map, enter, colonise and eventually inhabit. So he's obviously got a particular fixation on death. That sounds quite sci-fi as well. Yeah. Trying to inhabit death, it's like one of those... And colonise. Yeah, and colonise it, that's a very different thing, you know. It takes away the kind of human aspect of it for sure. Yeah. One thing I read in a review that I hadn't at all picked up on or thought about was that someone suggested that the narrator could have died in the accident. That's really interesting. I never thought about him dying as well in the accident and that being all a construct, but it would make sense. And then, of course, you could also read the book in a sort of Beckett sense Mm. of us just going through these motions of performing life and, you know, all our actions just being repetitive and futile. Well, it's interesting. We talked earlier about his disregard for other people's feelings. The character creates these scenarios that he talks about, like, when they're on or when they're off. These, like, living actors or reenactors, I think he calls them. There's no regard for them having a life. It's like an ownership thing or something. Yeah. Maybe I'm going off topic from what we were talking about, but there was that really interesting moment where there's a pianist that needs to keep getting things wrong and repeating. And then he realises the pianist has recorded himself and is playing. So it's like this repetition of fakery within it because he gets infuriated at the idea yeah. that the pianist would then record himself and that recording is fake and not true. Yes, um, and I think it's just a very yeah. interesting moment where it's all kind of digesting itself or something. (laughs) It is a hall of mirrors, isn't it? Yeah, totally. And I love it. I think it's so fascinating, but it sends you just spinning Mm. in so many different directions, which is why I think it's such a brilliant, brilliant book. Someone else suggested that it could be seen as a metaphor for the creative process. Yeah. It sounds like very cringy to think about in, in the creative process for me but then I think there's very specific points you know where it's like how far do you go what's a moment of truthfulness within creating something and what's not I think those moments and those questions that are asked in the novel are really interesting in terms of yeah creative processes as well
That makes a sort of neat segue into your practice. Holly has had a meteoric career since she graduated from the Royal College of Art in 2016. She had a solo show at the Baltic Centre for Contemporary Art in Gateshead in 2017 and a major commission for the Liverpool Biennial in 2018. In 2019, she had a show at the Yorkshire Sculpture Park and she had a fantastic exhibition at the De La Loire Pavilion called Indifferent Deep along with a public artwork outside the pavilion called Invertebrate. Holly uses an extraordinary range of materials. Her large-scale sculptures often have a cartoonish feel, like chunky bubble drawings, say, of a ribcage or intestines or a foot. Sometimes it's hard to even find the bodily element within the bigger pattern of layers, often in deceptively gentle pastel colours but the playful, light-hearted appearance of her sculptures belie complicated technical systems, extensive research, and even a hint of violence. Her De La Loire Pavilion exhibition plays on the themes of excavation and consumption, the idea of maybe excavating history, time, bodies. Some of the sculptures resemble fossils in some aspects, others look like they've been sliced through to reveal layers of strata and interior systems. A white sculpture looks like a skeleton, another looks like an attractive abstract sculpture, and then you notice it's topped with a large nose, and if you go round to the side you can look up its nostril and look out the other side. So Holly seems to be tying the body to deep time. The walls look eaten away and there are giant bite marks. In fact, the culprit might be the worm-like sculpture outside, which reminds me of the very hungry caterpillar from the children's book. The gigantic worm resurfaces on the first floor balcony and the roof of the gallery, as if it's burrowing deep into the foundations of the building and eating away at them. Holly, where does this interest in excavating systems and connections come from? I think it exists on quite a few levels without making that sound like a pun. One is my own desire to always try to figure out something, to peel back the skin and figure out how things are held together or not a literal skin, sometimes, you know, a wall or a floor or something like that. And also the question of fullness and emptiness, flatness and fullness, where those boundaries are. And for me, this act of pulling back a surface is related to the edge, which obviously relates to our conversations about the novel as well, like where we shift and morph and become other things. Embodiment, really. A lot of these ideas relate to embodiment, but also can sculpture or can spaces be made from removal as well as adding. And that, for me, is addressed in quite a practical sense. That's why I use cross-sections, I use mould-making, I use things that really do relate to that kind of cut or slice or fill or empty as well those actions that almost physically deal with the spaces instead. I'm also relating to a lot about the kind of structures set up in medicine, science or architecture that sometimes feel quite controlling or specific, you know, this idea of to see is to know. And as an artist, I come about it from a perspective where I don't know, but there's ways I'm feeling or I'm trying to figure out that isn't through seeing. So these physical making acts become points of kind of learning for me or Mm. unlearning or that kind of value of not knowing and trying to kind of show that through sculpture. I think especially living in London, I spend a lot of time underground, like travelling under the tube and stuff, but maybe it's similar to what we spoke about, about the cement spill or the knee fragment or something. There's like very little moments that then bring you to another place or make you think about the different way that something works. And I think in reference to what you're saying, I try and do that with the sculptures as well. 
Yeah, and those are moments that most people are oblivious to, actually. Mm. We're all travelling on the tube all the time without thinking, God, we're actually deep underground in this weird tunnel, Mm. and why and how and what does that mean? And Mm. is there a connection to other deep tunnels, either inside us or other tunnelings that, you know, we're not necessarily thinking about? And also in a larger sense, like, you know, how we live where we live, how we treat people and stuff, you know, like what bodies have been excluded from that situation or what bodies have been included and how can we use objects and stuff to talk about those aspects as well of how we treat other things. Yeah. (laughs) And that's not in a preachy sense. I'm always approaching things quite practically or trying to problem solve it and then sometimes don't know what the problem is. How are you in your practice looking at those issues of care or bodily connection? I think I do it through redundant machinery things that look like parts of motors or engines or conveyor belts that have stops or in moments of rest and what that means in terms of value labor and production and so i'd hope that the works can talk about that and then in a material sense the history of the materials i've used i'm always thinking about what i'm putting out in the world and it definitely is a concern just using things up and spitting it back out of the sculpture like what does that mean but I obviously also believe in the value of art of course and so with the Delaware show I was thinking a lot about the materials I've used and the context of its location on the south coast on this kind of physical land edge the conversation started before the pandemic before brexit (laughs) a lot has happened in the time politically and socially as well and so a lot of the materials are products of that like the floor and the walls in the Delaware are coated in MDF, which is a very regular building material, which was donated to me from a local builder whose building project had ceased because of COVID. So the whole project hadn't survived the pandemic and they were trying to get rid of it. And I felt quite alarmed by seeing this amount of mass material <laughs> that was surplus matter, really. And so they offered me the opportunity to use it. And I was like, no, 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 I can't. Like, it just felt too much. But then I thought about it and I thought, actually maybe it's worth addressing that feeling of horror of seeing mulched up wood kind of rationalised and made into these panels that then goes into making another space. Anyway, so the MDF became this material that seeing laid out in front of you in a gallery is like the kind of horror of it being, where's all this stuff come from? Where's it going to go? And I wanted to lay that out for people to see that element. And afterwards it will go on to be donated to local people to maybe build artist studios and stuff. So it's got this onward life. So yeah, the care aspect comes into that as something that is trying to find ways to talk about that and maybe find ways to make solutions to that. Like some of the outdoor sculptures filled with sand in parts so that can be emptied back out again and reused to something else. And so there's a kind of practical element of it as well of like how do I digest and regurgitate it quite literally instead of using it as a fresh shiny resource all the time. I think that onward life of materials is very interesting and a relevant thing to speak about. It's funny, especially in that Delaware show, a lot of the sculptures seem inanimate or abstract, Mm. but then you look closer and you'll notice some teeth or heads or Mm. tools, a nose. Could you talk a bit about the relationship of your works to the body? Yeah, they're kind of hybrid portraits in a way. Not of me, necessarily. They kind of flip between figure and abstraction. And I think for me, that's a technique of animation. A massive part of my practice is always trying to find this space between 
deadness and animation, what makes it alive. And a lot of the time, if there is something quite overtly figurative, suddenly it does become a body. And so what happens if you're mashing those machinic elements with something that has toes? You know, there's a comedy aspect of that when they're larger than life as well, but they also bring you into the internal of a body. So for this show specifically, I was really trying to picture the building as some form of body that's being eaten and become porous. And so as a viewer, you're inhabiting that space, you're already inside it. So it felt kind of necessary to have these quite direct suggestions of that body to infer that with the architecture as well. I was really thinking about this aspect of x-rays and imaging of bodies, especially with the windows of the Delaware. There's this real relationship to the outdoor work and the inside show that kind of coexist. And these windows kind of became an x-ray into the body of the building. It's interesting how like a lot of modern architecture has kind of responded to medical situations at the time. Beatrice Colomina's written an amazing book about x-rays in architecture, basically, and she speaks about Le Corbusier and Le Corbusier's glass and the kind of visibility to that in relation to like tuberculosis and the development of x-rays that were happening, this idea of kind of seeing and health and visibility because everything became white clean and being able to be see-through. Fascinating. Um, and he really tried to take his buildings away from the ground. He put them on stilts and was kind of all about fresh air and stuff like that but for me the show was changing as a pandemic was happening as well and I was also thinking so much about the ground the wetness the dryness of the ground but there's that aspect of maybe bringing the architecture of something that's felt in a bodily sense but also relating to the earth and the ground I mean maybe I'm a psychopath <laughs> like this guy and I'm trying to like but merge bodies to the ground as well but there feels something relevant there about yeah. the ground and the body I have a question in here. You push materials to extremes, a bit like in Remainder, and his character has something cartoon-like about it. It's so extreme and his attitude to violence, we're kind of not sure what to do with him or how to respond. I wondered if you see anything of yourself in the narrator <laughs> of Remainder, aside from obviously the psychotic, the psychotic, the psychotic sociopathic the tendencies. Well, I definitely don't want to blow people to smithereens. <laughs> But I think the element of control is really interesting because as an artist, you feel yourself very aware of that in every aspect. Making the public outdoor work, I had to work with white wall fabrications who helped construct the work because my welding wouldn't be safe enough to endure outside at the seaside. And I don't usually do that, I usually make it all myself. It's like just me, just my hands and maybe my partner or a mate helping out as well. It's just, there's not much letting go because it's all the decisions that happen as it's going along. And mm -hmm. so yeah, it did make me think about that <laughs> as, as I was reading it. But the act of unknowing is really important for me as well. A lot of the time I'm trying to make to a material idea that sometimes seems impossible and the kind of act of invention as I go along really is apparent in the work. There's a weird relationship to control and lack of control and where I kind of use them. Maybe you're more at home with the lack of control. You sound like you actually welcome it as well. Yeah, but it's, but it's similar to his character. I'm like controlling the uncontrolled, you know? Like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to decide when I don't need control and when I do. What yeah. I think is so strange is how this accessing reality or whatever he thinks he's trying to do actually expresses itself physically in his body with mm. this tingling, mm. right? He talks yeah. a lot about tingling and this sensation that travels up his spine. It's not an alarm signal. It's a positive euphoric feeling for him. And I just was thinking about that when you were talking about the 
connections with the body and the building as a body. And mm. I thought about his big building where he sets up mm. all these connections with all these different reenactors and one old lady frying up liver and the pianist having to play piano. And yeah. I just thought of that as somehow a giant body as well, somehow a giant living organism. Yeah, I mean, it becomes that. It becomes a living picture or yeah. a living organism and I think it's really interesting how he physically leaves spaces blank or even like he couldn't remember the face of the receptionist in the building so he made her wear a helmet with a blanked out face yeah. because <laughs> there's the same thing of being on or off you know that could relate to an exhibition space. I have worked in the Delaware show that there's one that's on a timer that comes on for 30 seconds every hour or something. So it becomes about different measuring devices or something as well. And similarly, he finds measuring devices in like how much of the smell of cooking liver comes through the kitchen or something. There's like, there's a right amount. Exactly. <laughs> but also in that show, you have blank spaces mm. that are built into the work that I assume have the same importance as yeah. the filled in spaces and they clearly have a role to play but I think that ties in as well. Yeah I think the holes create a lot of presence yes <laughs> and the holes are such a massive part of the show they become this kind of an architecture they're like part of the physical building that's been taken away. I was really excited when those holes could create this presence but in cutting them through the walls, they also kind of slice the space as well. And I was really interested how they create an image with the space. I do it in a lot of the shows that I make, like the Baltic show you mentioned as well. It had a kind of bone-shaped hole in the wall of the outside gallery and it makes a cutout of the space inside and does yeah. a specific image of it. And it's, it, that's a kind of repeat of a cross-section in a way, where it's a kind of slice of an image. So yeah, I think that resonates with me with this idea of a living picture or a tableau vivant aspect where it goes from being an image to something that you then enter and you occupy the space of. What about the materials, by the way? Looking at your list of materials for Phyllis, the sculpture inspired by a digging machine of that name that was used for the crossrail construction mm. that you made for Selfridge's art block. The listed materials are building rubble, steel, jasmineite, pigment, ash, charcoal, soap, foam, marble, aluminium, grit, and lipstick. What determines your choice of materials? The choice of materials are really determined by the surrounding context of the work as well. So for Phyllis, the work was based on a crossrail digging machine named Phyllis that dug under the site where the sculpture was. After she had dug her journey, I guess the crossrail team decided that she was too big and heavy to excavate. So instead they just got her to kind of veer off to the side and in effect kind of dug her own grave. And oh, so they Phyllis. Yeah, so they then bricked her up and she's under the ground now as this kind of time capsule in a sense. Yes. I felt for Phyllis <laughs> and the work was a kind of reliquy to Phyllis, a, a monument to Phyllis in a sense of something that no longer exists. And the materials were things that I think I related to Phyllis that she would have experienced or dug through. It's like things that are very bodily or relate to what we discard. So the work had chewed gum in it and fake nails. It was also in Selfridge's accessory hall. And I'd never been into Selfridge's before then. It's like this monument to consumerism in yes, a sense. You know, it's like the excess of stuff. So I wanted it to include these bodily add-ons, these bodily things that very much become our body. Like, how do you 
define the edge of a neck or a necklace when you're wearing the necklace you know it becomes part of your body in the same way fake nails do or, or lipstick becomes your face and your lips it defines your lips and so especially the fake nails and the gum they're like these plasticky things that were a joke that they became looking like terras so they became like this kind of you know more trendy material that becomes clad in interiors or kitchens and stuff now <laughs> as well but it's made of quite abject things if you look closely at it so the gum was chewed the nails were discarded ones but they were also fake things they were plastic but it's not plastic that we see as plastic it's plastic that becomes a bodily appendage of some way yes and then the rubble was from the site itself so it was like this kind of element of dirt that is referencing the kind of void below so in that sense yeah the materials were like extremely important to talk about the ideas behind the work as well and with the Delaware show there's a lot of aggregates that come from the brickworks that relate to those processing mechanisms. I used a lot of sand in a lot of the works because the Delaware itself is like being battered by the elements. It's like this right. kind of building that's a cliff on the edge of the yeah. sea that's constantly fighting it. For me, it became really interesting to use sand as a material that's like something that is used to erode. It's like you can sandblast something or sandpaper, but it's also the product of erosion. It's like stone broken down into sand and it's constantly moving. It makes glass. It's like all these things that I was relating very mm. much to the site. Yeah, so the sand became a really big part of that show, as well as the chalks and the clays that were the kind of colours of the surrounding, really. That show had one or two, I can't remember, kinetic elements, but your Yorkshire Sculpture Park mm. show was the first really big moving yeah. sculpture, wasn't it? That show was called The Dump is Full of Images, and its centrepiece was Slacker, mm. which was a giant moving sculpture with a synthetic skin-like band being pulled around a huge steel contraption on a conveyor belt. And the band was embedded with ground-up detritus, right, from your studio, and also depicted food and body parts. There's an eyeball, there's intestines. So there was a theme again of consumption and regurgitation and looping, mm. going back to remainder. <laughs> what was the inspiration with that project? So the title of the show is taken from a book called The Real Thing by Miles Orwell and the end of the book, the epilogue, is called The Dump is Full of Images and this epilogue kind of talks about detritus as a thing to be looked at and re-examined as something that takes the mass produced and makes it individual. It's a way to re-look at the leftover in a sense. Mm -hmm. So I became really interested in this idea of the remnant at the same time I was thinking about this, I was living in Rome and I was looking at lots of ancient Roman and medieval reliquies as containers of holy body parts and kind of depictions of rubbish like the unswept floor mosaic that kind of becomes a memento mori in a sense because it's like the remnants of a big banquet that then depicts like fish bones and chicken legs made into mosaics and kind of preserved forever as a floor. And I was just blown away mm. by that. And so how all these kind of discarded objects and images talk about living as well. I like the idea of the dump is full of images in relation to the Yorkshire Sculpture Park as well and its history with how it was made as a sculpture park. And then the building that the work was in was being made at the time. It was in the Western Gallery at Yorkshire Sculpture Park and it's this incredible building that's cut out of the land and is very low and long, kind of similar to the Delaware in, in a sense. I was standing in the space as the building was being built, seeing Henry Moore's outside and thinking, God, what is my sculpture in relation to that? It's like, it's 
maybe moving or using materials that are ephemeral or materials that aren't static. So I was thinking about the landscape and this notion of that in relation to sculpture and I kept thinking about this idea of the recumbent figure and these actions of activeness and passiveness that happen when a body is lying down, if that's in like sleep or rest or death, this digesting while you're sleeping or dreaming while you're sleeping or decomposing if you're dying, if you're dead. And so there was this idea of kind of movement and slowness that I really wanted to depict in some way. And so the conveyor belt became a kind of way to try and tackle all these things. At the same time, I was having these conversations with Professor Parikh Goswami at the University of Huddersfield, who's head of technical textiles. He's a material scientist who's doing amazing things in the reuse of materials. I was really inspired by the work he does. Quite practically, he solves problems to textile. So I wanted to make this thing that became a kind of constant regurgitating system that Mm -hmm. spoke about a kind of body in a sense but also it could have maybe referenced a supermarket conveyor or a treadmill or something that also talks about production or overproduction and also though looks like a reclining figure as yeah before. there's these two kind of vitrines one that's kind of an undulating surface and becomes a chest surface and then one at the end that's much more depictive of a foot i definitely wanted to make it feel like it was a body because the gallery has these big windows that look out to the landscape and so I wanted that body to kind of lie against the landscape beyond as well. But also this aspect of the reliquies as a kind of container of holy body parts but also the most direct kind of relation to almost bodily fragmentation or something. It's like literal body parts taken and kind of re-put into displays and shown as these holy venerated things. And I was thinking about like abject discarded matter at the same time as these reliquies that represent spirituality and cures to bodily ailment but I was also reading about them being sometimes faked and repeated and sometimes instead of a saint's finger it could be just a chicken bone but those things don't matter anymore because it's the meaning behind the reliquy it's the belief instead of the kind of physical material element and I see lots of parallels with this and remainder you know like high and low value to things and when those hierarchies change what becomes valuable and what becomes useless and inert yeah suddenly how a stain on the floor becomes the most important thing to then recreate i was like reading about how there's seven christ's foreskin reliquies or something (laughs) and the fact that that doesn't matter anymore it's about the containment of it and the belief of it as well so those all of those ideas poured into the sculpture park do you think there is violence sometimes in the fragmentation in what you're presenting? Just as you were saying before, how cartoons have a violence often behind them. There's a brutality because with humour, it glosses yeah. over quite violent actions sometimes. Yeah, maybe I'd relate that act of violence to the trickery of it. You know, you're seduced yes. by the colours or the materials. But I think for me, maybe the violence is like the reference to labour or time or production and where that maybe invisible labour comes from. You know, with the materials we use and things like that, I think for me that's a more overt violent reference, which maybe isn't so obvious, but it Mm -hmm. kind of comes up through the idea of loops and repetition and reference to production or overproduction. I guess when I was thinking of violence, I suppose I was thinking of your Delawar particularly... Because, of course, you can see that worm as a sort of metaphor for what happens to us in death, right? If mm. the Dilawar is a big body standing and this worm is burrowing away and eating mm. away at it inside, there's an attacking happening, an ingesting of the building. For sure. I think it can be read 
in that way, the worm for me became this kind of amazing metaphor for how to bypass edges, how to you oh, know nice. understand yeah. those moments that aren't such binary edges of you know nobody being allowed in Britain that's not whatever you know those kind of things or the worm being able to create a small gesture that has a bigger implication like the way that worms can sink stones by undermining and things and there is obviously the idea of incorporation the eating but if we're talking about violence and dying there's something amazing in the fact that you carry on in other life forms yeah I'm not trying to be toxically positive about it (laughs) but I just I see it as an amazing material transformation and I'm always trying to think about where the edge of something is and how those can be folded in on themselves and stretched out and pulled in different ways. And the worm was like a kind of quite literal way of talking about that and trying to talk about when you eat a crisp and you chew it up, that edge of that crisp disappears. And like, how do we talk about that in terms of public space or architecture or or bigger things too as well? I love that. It's a really (laughs) interesting way of looking at it. I learned a lot about earthworms. about the artists that have inspired you oh yeah this question is always so hard I think it changes every time people ask me (laughs) because it's kind of what I'm thinking about at the time so for today I would answer artists like Rebecca Horn, Isamu Noguchi, always Louise Bourgeois or Pauline Oliveros who was a composer and sonic pioneer, Owen Worm and people like that yes. kind of comedy. I look at a lot of writers as well, I'm listening to talks by Astrida Nymesis, she writes about post-humanist feminist theories about bodies of water and water as this material that can be used to think about ways of treating other bodies and landscapes and stuff Mm -hmm. and Maggie Nelson and people like that as well. What is it about Rebecca Horn say that you connect to most? I think it's the freedom of articulation. She's able to speak about the body and relationship and movement in such a way that it's not about fitting to other norms. She wouldn't have any trouble with that carrot no, exactly. She'd <laughs> probably have a device to exactly. do it instead of just a hand. Yeah. <laughs> what about books that you're reading at the moment? I have also just read a book called Strangers, which is actually a series of short essays on the human and non-human by Rebecca Tamas. It's amazing. It's really interesting. And I'm going to try and read J.G. Ballard's Drowned World again. I started it just before the pandemic and I never picked it up again. Some books don't feel right at certain times. Yeah. What about what you've got coming up next in terms of shows? I'm doing a show with Stephen Friedman Gallery, with my gallery, that will open in January. And I've got a work that's in a group show curated by Andy Holden that's called Beano, The Art of Breaking the Rules, that will will open at Somerset House in October, which I'm very excited about because the Beano is something that I've never thought of as an influence, but it's always been something that was quite a part of my childhood I think a part of most people's even adult life in a way so I'm looking forward to that anyone who hasn't seen Invertebrate at the Delaware Pavilion it's epic and well worth a visit and it's up until the 12th of November she's also in the Arts Council UK touring exhibition Breaking the Mould Sculpture by Women since 1945 which is touring so you can catch Holly's work in a number of places so it just remains for me to say thank you so much Holly it's been a total delight to have you on Art Fiction thank you thanks for chatting it's been really 
really fascinating to hear all about how you relate your work to Remainder. So yeah, thank you. Yeah. I hope we did it justice. I think I need to go back and reread it again now. <laughs> Thank you listeners and also thanks to today's guest artist Holly Hendry as well as today's host Elizabeth Fullerton. The music for this abridged podcast was written and performed by Griffin Knight while award-winning animator Joanna Quinn of Beryl Productions created the Art Fictions logo. If you'd like to support the series please subscribe and rate which helps other people find the podcast and you're welcome of course to get in touch with me directly via my Art Fictions 2020 Instagram. Meanwhile, happy reading and art viewing till next time.